Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Today, God speaks to us from Psalms chapter 119, verses 32 to 49. I run in the path of your commands, for you have broadened my understanding. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Take away the disgrace I dread, for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness, preserve my life. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promise. Then I can answer anyone who taunts me, for I trust in your word. Never take your word of truth from my mouth, for I have put my hope in your laws. I will always obey your law forever and ever. I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. I will speak of your statutes before kings and will not be put to shame, for I delight in your commands because I love them. I reach out for your commands, which I love, that I may meditate on your decrees. Remember your word to your servant, for you have given me hope. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So we're continuing in a sermon series. We're going to be in the Psalms for most of the year. And for the first part of this year, we've been looking at what do the Psalms have to teach us about spiritual practices or the spiritual life. And in many respects, the book of Psalms is easily one of the most influential works ever written in the history of humanity on the spiritual life. And so for us as modern people, regardless of whether we would consider ourselves religious or would profess the Christian faith or not, there's a lot of wisdom to be gleaned from this book in the book of Psalms. Uh, Today we're going to be talking about the topic of a life of obedience. And in many respects, if you've heard me talk about spiritual practices, all the spiritual practices we've been talking about from prayer and scripture to Sabbath and rest and worship and all these things, all those practices are actually meant to hone our instincts and our muscle memory so that we can live a life of obedience. So if you remember, if you've heard me talk about this, I like to use like an analogy from the world of athletics or the arts to say, why does somebody practice something? Well, the purpose of practicing is to fine-tune your muscle memory so that in the heat of the moment, when all the pressure is on, your instincts have been honed to respond in a very particular sort of a way. Our spiritual practices are meant to be things we do in the quiet when nobody's looking, to practice when, uh, when no attention is on us, so that in the heat of a moment, we can respond in the manner and with the mission of Jesus. So this life of obedience, in a lot of ways, is the point of all of these spiritual practices. So that's what we're going to be looking at. But before I do that, getting a little inspired from CJ, so I'm going to get a little bit of audience participation here. When you hear the word obey or obedience, what feelings or just general associations come to mind? So I say obey, obedience. What are the feelings or associations come to mind? Just shout them out. Strict. Strict. Guilt. 
What is it? Perfection. What is it? What? Servitude. What else? Respect. Laws. What? Parents. Thank you. I appreciate that. From my son. I appreciate that. Grace. So here's what, here's what I find interesting. The word obey and obedience almost always in our culture today evoke these kind of negative emotions or associations. Right? So when we talk about obey, you might think of things like somebody else controlling your behavior. Uh, that there's an authority outside of you that's telling you what to think and to do. For some, there might even be associations of kind of turn off your mind, don't ask questions, just do as you're told. And that even in the realm of child raising, even there the word obedience almost still has a little bit of a negative connotation, doesn't it? So if somebody were to say, you have very obedient children, I think my generation, that would have been one of the highest praises a parent could receive. Oh, my, my children are obedient. But now when someone says, you have very obedient children, it almost feels like, yeah, you're very controlling as a parent. And maybe that's just me, I don't know, right? But this idea of obedience, so even to be talking today that the goal of the spiritual life is a life of obedience, is a little bit countercultural. It might even, you're sitting here today, it might even rub you a little bit the wrong way. Because in our culture today, I could only think of two instances where I see the word obey on a regular basis. One of them is sprite. So Sprite's tagline is what? <coughs> Obey your thirst. All right, so it's actually a great tagline for a drink. Obey your thirst. But the idea there is the only thing you ought to obey are your own drives and ambitions. Obey your thirst. Or there's a second instance of obey that I see from time to time. And every once in a while I see like people who are way cooler than me wearing sweatshirts that say obey on them. And initially, I was like, yo, that's, that's awesome. Like, you want to obey Jesus. Like, that must. So I did what every cool middle-aged man does. I Googled it. And apparently on the website, the entire clothing line that says obey was started by a guy named Shepard Ferry. And he's actually the guy who designed Obama's uh, Hope uh, placards, that thing, right? Uh, so he was a student at the Rhode Island School of Design. This is back in 1989. Here's what he means by that word obey. It's fascinating to me, right? You know you're old when you're using Wikipedia to understand sweatshirts. But here we go. Uh, it says this. The obey meaning is rooted in the do-it-yourself counterculture of punk rock and skateboarding. Ferry, the guy who, who uh, designed it, steeps his ideology and iconography in self-empowerment. With biting sarcasm ver verging on reverse psychology, he goads viewers using the imperative obey, and here's why, to take heed of the propagandists out to bend the world to their agendas. So there's actually something very countercultural about what he's saying. He's saying, be careful, because if you obey the slogans, if you obey the government, if you obey the propagandists, you'll be a mindless, non-thinking person. But the implications are clear that in our culture today, the only thing that it's safe to obey are your own desires and drives and ambitions. Well, the book of Psalms, which speaks to us with thousands of years of wisdom, actually wants to tell us this morning there's a kind of obedience 
that can lead to a life of true delight and fulfillment and freedom. And it's a notion of obedience that I feel like in our modern culture we've nearly lost even our capacity to grasp. All right, so let's look at that. First, I want to look at the kind of obedience that enslaves. And we've already touched a little bit on this. Secondly, I want to look at the obedience that liberates. And then thirdly, I want us to look at the secret to joyful obedience. Okay? So first, the obedience that enslaves. If you could pull up verse 36 and 37 there. The Bible does say that there is a particular kind of obedience that will enslave you, that will ultimately dehumanize you. But actually, it's not the kind of obedience that you might think. Actually, if you go back to verse 33, let me read it for just from the beginning. The psalmist is writing this. He's saying, Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I may follow it to the end. Give me understanding that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. Direct me in the path of your commands, for there I will find delight. Turn my heart toward your statutes and not toward selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. Preserve my life according to your word. If you look at verse 36 and 37, do you hear what the psalmist is saying? He's saying there is a certain kind of obedience that will leave you enslaved, that will leave you leading a life that pursues worthless, empty, and vain things. But this kind of obedience, the psalmist is saying, is the life that only obeys the cravings of the self. He says, turn my heart towards your statues and not towards selfish gain. Turn my eyes away from worthless things. You almost feel like the psalmist is wrestling here with something that sounds almost like an addiction. You get the sense that the psalmist feels trapped, that I can't turn my heart away from things besides selfish gain. My heart is bent towards myself, that this desire that I find within myself is this vortex. It's this appetite that will not be satisfied or satiated, that the more I give in to fulfilling the desires of the self, the more I find myself needing and pulled into this vortex of selfish desires. And so he's calling out to God. He's saying, I need a resource outside of myself to pull me out, to turn my heart away from selfish gain. Verse 37, he says, turn my eyes away from worthless things. He's saying, my imagination, my daydreaming, the things that my eyes end up wandering towards, I find myself drawn inexplicably, inexorably towards things that ultimately mean nothing. Towards vanity, towards emptiness. He's saying, I need help, O oh Lord. I can't stop in my own strength. There is within me the center of gravity of the self that ultimately enslaves and entraps me. And I cannot get free. The more I struggle, the more I'm drawn into the quicksand, the spider web of the self. Oscar Wilde was an author. <clears throat> Some of you may have heard he wrote like, a picture of Dorian Gray. <clears throat> in his lifetime, he was known as kind of a wild hedonist. He was just somebody who just pursued pleasure no matter how it presented himself. Towards the end of his life, Oscar Wilde was reflecting on his life, and he said this. He said, desire at the end 
was a malady or a madness or both. I grew careless about the lives of others. I took pleasure wherever it pleased me, and then I just moved on. And then he said this, I ceased to be the Lord over myself. I was no longer the captain of my soul, and I didn't even know it. I allowed pleasure to dominate me, and I ended in horrible disgrace. I forgot that every little action of the common day makes or unmakes character, and therefore what you've done in the secret chamber one day has to come, come today to cry aloud on the top of the housetops. It's this language of addiction that the more you end up obeying only your own thirsts, the more, the Bible says, you will find yourself trapped and enslaved. And actually, all the ancients defined freedom in almost the exact opposite way that we do. In our modern days, when we talk about freedom, how would you, what's the most simple definition of freedom that you could think of? It's to be able to do what you want. All the ancients, the Greeks, the Romans, all these ancient civilizations said, that's not human freedom, that's animal freedom. Human freedom is the ability to do more than just what you merely want. That to be human is to be free from the instincts and desires, free from the appetites that were most base to our being, to be able to pursue a higher good, a more noble end. That freedom was freedom from these things, not freedom for these things. That this ultimate obedience only to our own thirst leaves us enslaved. And we know we tell these to our kids, stories to our kids too, don't we, at some level? We know them instinctively. Remember the movie uh, Pinocchio? Where Pinocchio and his friends, they end up on Pleasure Island. And on Pleasure Island, they get to, they get to do all the things that apparently little boys like to do. They get to drink and gamble and just have fun, stay up late. Like, this is Pleasure Island. And do you remember what happens to Pinocchio, Pinocchio and his friends? when these are on Pleasure Island. At first it was fine, they have a great time, but over time what happens to them? They find themselves slowly becoming beasts. They grow the donkey ears and a tail. And the longer you spend on Pleasure Island, the more you think you're free to do whatever you want, the more you find yourself enslaved, enslaved to lower desires. And you find yourself becoming less human. You see, the Bible offers us wisdom in our culture today that at first makes no sense because it speaks to us from outside of our time. And yet the Bible says if you want to find an obedience that will truly free and liberate you, you're not going to find it solely in the desires of the self. Now, one thing that I think our, our culture does get right is that there is a kind of obedience that can enslave us when we are mindlessly obeying authorities outside of us. So I think this is a right critique that our culture is seeking to press in, that obedience to the authorities who don't always have our best interests in mind can exploit and oppress and enslave. That human history is filled with plenty of examples like that. Even the history of Israel is filled with plenty of examples like that. But what the Bible would tell us, what the psalmist would tell us today, is that not only is there enslavement on that end of the spectrum, authorities outside of you demanding obedience, 
But the psalmist would say there's an even more insidious enslavement on the other end of the spectrum. That forces outside of you can enslave. But the most dangerous kind of enslavement are the forces within you. They can enslave you to its own desires. One of the most important moral claims of the Bible, I believe, is that the self, the unbridled self, is not going to be our great liberator. The unbridled self is part of the sickness that we also need to be liberated from. And so the psalmist says this, he says, you need help to turn your heart away from selfish gain. You need a force, a power outside of you to turn your eyes away from what's empty and what's vain. You need something to expand your heart to something bigger than you, greater than you, that's found outside of you. So where do we find that? So that's first, the obedience that enslaves. Uh, secondly, let's look at the obedience that liberates. But before we do that, I'm going to grab my water here. <clears throat> uh, the obedience that liberates us. So if you look at the verses, verses 33 through 35, I love the language that we find there. If you could pull that up for me in a second. It says, well, th we'll start with 32. I run in the path of your commandments, for you have broadened my understanding. Teach me, Lord, the way of your decrees, that I might follow it to the end. Give me understanding so that I may keep your law and obey it with all my heart. And then verse 35. Direct me in the paths of your commands, for there I will find delight. So the language there might be a little bit foreign to you, because here's a psalmist talking about the law of God. And the language that the psalmist uses is almost like lovesick language. He's saying, I want to direct me in your past because there I'm going to find delight. Teach me to obey you with all of my heart. Teach me to obey you all the way to the end. And what the psalmist is saying, he's, saying, he's, he's not saying this. He's saying, God, help me to grit my teeth a little bit harder to stop asking you questions and just do what you say. The psalmist is saying something radically different from that. The psalmist is saying, open up my mind. Open up my heart so I learn what it means to love your law. So I learn what it means to find delight in your law. If you look at verse 33, I think it is, or no, sorry, yeah, verse 33. It says, teach me, Lord, the ways of your decrees that I might follow it to the end. Now the English there is a little bit confusing. It sounds like, teach me your way so I could follow it all the way to the bitter end when I die. But the actual Hebrew there, different translations will translate it this way. They said, teach me, Lord, the ways of your decrees that I might follow it to its own reward. The imagery there is almost like, Lord, help me to follow the rainbow of your law so that when I get to the end, I find the reward that was your intent for me all along. Help me to trace the path of your commands, to understand the intent and the trajectory of your commands so well that it discover at the end of your command your intentions of joy and delight and flourishing and fullness of life. Help me to obey it all the way to the end that you intend for us. And this is what the psalmist is getting at. He's saying that there is a kind of obedience to the law of the God who made you, who designed you, 
the God who formed you, the God who gave you a particular kind of nature, there's an obedience to the law of this God that when you follow it all the way to the end, you discover that the intent of this God is an intention of joy and freedom and delight. Justin and I were just talking about this uh, earlier this week over breakfast with a friend of ours. We're talking about an analogy that we oftentimes use is learning the piano. So all of our kids had to learn the piano. And they hated us for it and they continued to hate us for it. Uh, But the thing about learning the piano is this. You have to submit yourself to very strict rules in theory of piano. You just got to practice your scales. If you don't know the scales, if you can't run up the A minor scale and back down, if you can't do the work of learning, if you can't submit yourself to the discipline of music to understand what it is, if you never do that work, and while you're doing that work, by the way, if you've ever had to learn, I'm not particularly musical, it feels like enslavement to learn music. You have to practice every day. You always have those lessons that are coming. You hate it. Why am I doing this? What is the point? I'm never going to be a professional musician. Why do I have to do these things? Then in the midst of it, it feels like this massive restriction of your freedom, of your joy. But if you continue on to the very end, if you follow that to the, all the way to the end, you get to a place that when you submit yourself to the limits of music, On the far end, you find a new joy of improvisation. You find a new freedom. You actually find a new way of self-expression where you discover stuff that's inside of you that you never would have known had you not submitted yourself to the limiting constraints of the scales that you had to run up, up and down, over and over and over again. That there's a freedom on the far end. There's a joy, there's a delight on the far end of the commands of God that you will never taste, that you will never know unless you learn to trust the one who gives the law. You know, over the years at Redeemer, this is kind of how we've talked about freedom. That freedom is not the absence of all constraints. That freedom is actually just the presence of the right constraints. That a condition where you have your freedom from, where you're free from all constraints. You know what environment that creates? When you're free from all constraints, you create an environment where you've lost every anchor that might pull you out of the vortex of the self. But the presence of the right constraints, this is what creates true freedom. This is what creates a true sense of delight and joy. There was a study that I got to dig up. I can't remember exactly where the source on it uh, was, but I I found it years ago, and I got to dig it back up again. But there was a study that showed that when you give children a playground, and if that playground is all in the wide open without a fence, if you watch young children play at a playground like that, if that playground is wide open, the kids tend to huddle towards the center of the playground because they're not quite sure how far they can range and still be safe. And so there's a sense in which when it comes to, free, when it comes to playgrounds, the more wide open the playground is, is, the less room children feel free to explore. When you take a playground and you create clearly marked fences around it, you define the constraints of the space, and what they discovered is children would tend to play all the way out to the edges because they know exactly where the lines have fallen. They know exactly where it's safe to be free and to explore the fullness of joy, the laws of God, the decrees of God, this call to obedience, 
is God saying, here is where you will find the full range of pleasure and joy and delight. That when we acknowledge the goodness and the givenness of what God has granted to us, we'll find that same kind of freedom. So I love verses 44 and 45, if you could pull that up there, where the psalmist says, I will always obey your law forever and ever. And then he says, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. That's what it's getting at. I will find freedom, true freedom. I will walk, I will dance, I will play in freedom because you've granted me your precepts. And the psalmist says, this is the law, the obedience that will liberate. This is the obedience that will give you life. The perspective of the Bible is that you will always obey something. You will always be giving your life to something. You will always be obedient to the authority of something else. You will always lay yourself on the altar of something. The question is, is that Lord, is that Master, is that God, a God who will free you? A God who will love you? A God who will forgive you when you fail? A God who will heal you when you're wounded? A God who will embrace you when you've run away? You're going to obey something. Is it the God who has given you life? And so that's point number two, the obedience that liberates. Third and finally, let's look at the secret to joyful obedience. Look at verse 38, 39, and 40. Uh, it says this. 38. Back one more. There you go. Fulfill your promise to your servant so that you may be feared. Verse 39. Take away the disgrace I dread for your laws are good. How I long for your precepts. In your righteousness preserve my life. May your unfailing love come to me, Lord, your salvation according to your promises. Now here's what I find interesting. Did you notice verse 38? Isn't it an interesting thing for the psalmist to say, fulfill your promises to your servant so that you may be feared? That doesn't make any sense, does it? There's another place in Psalm 130 that makes even less sense than that, where it says, uh, you are the, with, but with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. So he says, keep your promises to me, verse 38, so that you'll be feared. Uh, you are the God with, of forgiveness. With you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. What is the psalmist getting at there? See, this notion of the fear of the Lord is a notion that I think as modern people, we have no idea what the Bible means when it talks about the fear of the Lord. When you hear about the fear of the Lord, what is it that comes to your mind? It's probably the opposite of every bit, everything I've been trying to convince you of. There's a God you have to be afraid of. There's a God who will punish you if you don't obey. There's a God who's going to be out to get you, who will bring bad things into your life unless you do what He tells you to do. That's what, fe that's what fear of the Lord sounds like. It sounds like to be afraid of God. But actually, if you look in the Bible, this notion of the fear of the Lord comes up well over a hundred times. And each time the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, the Bible is talking about an authentic biblical faith. They would say, so-and-so feared God and therefore obeyed. That these people were good, they were God-fearers at the heart of it. This person learned what it meant to fear the Lord and therefore walk with Him. And so we hear that and we say, well, does that mean we're supposed to be afraid of God? 
Is that what authentic biblical faith is? Or maybe is there something else going on here? Maybe as modern people, we've forgotten what it means to fear the Lord. And here's my best attempt at trying to explain to you what this is. I've tried like 10 times as a pastor to explain what the fear of the Lord is. And I feel like I failed every single time. So this might be t- attempt number 11. Okay, so you ready? For me, the best place to go to when we want to think about the fear of the Lord is this chapter in Jonah, is this verse in Jonah chapter 1. So if you know the story, Jonah is a prophet of God, and he was told to go to Nineveh, which is a group of people that he despises. And instead of going to Nineveh, he gets onto a boat that takes him the opposite direction of Nineveh. He's like, the last place I'm going is to those, feet, those people. He gets onto the boat. God sends this big storm. And it's his boat, and all the sailors are there, and it's the worst storm they've ever seen. So these professional sailors are fearing for their lives. They're saying, this is it. This is how it all ends. In a moment of desperation, they start asking everybody on the ship, like, hey, what god do you worship? Because did you do something to make this god mad? Because we can't figure this out. And they finally come to, uh, to Jonah. They find him sleeping. And they wake him up and say, Jonah, what's the god that you worship? Did you make him mad? And Jonah says, yeah, that's probably me. I worship the God uh, who created the land, air, and sky, so, uh, land, air, and sea, so that's probably me. So he's like, you know what, just throw me overboard, and, and God will, you know, he'll chill out, basically. And the sailors are like, we can't do that. How could we possibly do that? And so they, the, the text says, when Jonah says, I'm the, I'm the one who worships Yahweh, the God of the land, air, and the sea, it says that the sailors were terrified. Okay, keep that word in your mind. It says the ta- sailors were terrified. So Jonah says, okay, throw me into the sea. And they're like, well, we can't do that. That's not, that's not okay. But they keep struggling with the storm. They're like, all right, sorry, God. I guess we're just going to throw him overboard. So they throw Jonah overboard. The storm goes away. And then it says the sailors from that moment feared God and made vows and offered sacrifices to him. Here's what's baffling to me. The sailors go from being terrified of God because they sensed that he was angry, that this was a God that needed to be appeased. God shows them mercy and gentleness and tenderness. And because of the gentleness and the tenderness and the mercy of God, the text says that the sailors went from being terrified of God to the fear of the Lord. They're wildly different things. They're almost opposite emotions. That for me, the best way that I can define the fear of the Lord is this. The fear of the Lord, the one that you fear in your life, is the one who's been so faithful and patient and true and kind and unwavering in their commitment to you that theirs is the only opinion that matters to you. That's the fear of the Lord. It's the one who has never let you down. And so therefore, it's the last person you'd ever want to let down. It's the one whose love for you matters the most. And therefore, their opinion is the only one that matters to you. That the fear in the fear of the Lord That fear is the fear of betraying the one you know who would never reject you or leave you or forsake you. 
And now when the psalmist says, keep your promise to your servant, verse 38 again, so that I might fear you. Or when the psalmist says in, in Psalm 130, with you there is forgiveness, therefore you are feared. What is the psalmist saying? You are the one who has been so true and faithful and kind and unwavering to me. You have shown me such steadfast love. Your opinion is the only thing that matters to me. That my greatest fear is to let down the one who would never let me down. And the psalmist says this, you want to know how you can get to a point where you obey God joyfully? The only way you'll be able to find yourself obeying God out of joy is if you experience God as the one who never let you down, the one who never would forsake you or leave you, the one who would go to all extremes, every length to remain faithful to you until you've experienced God as the only one who will never let you down. then every other opinion is going to matter more to you than his. Do you see what I'm saying? Until you've experienced God is saying, I will pay every price. I will do everything it takes. I will go to every single end to never break my promise to you, to always be faithful to you, no matter what it requires. Until you've experienced God that way, you will never know the fear of the Lord. The opinion of others will still control you. The approval of the world, the acceptance of those around you will still be the most important thing to you. But when you see that Jesus Christ, that Jesus was the one who lived in this world of perfect delight, he lived in perfect obedience to the Father. Here was Jesus who had the perfect approval. Jesus was the one who truly had the fear of the Lord. He said, I do whatever I see my father doing. I don't care what anybody else says. He lived a life of perfect human freedom who was free to do whatever it took. And yet here is Jesus Christ who left the place of delight and joy and perfect freedom. He left all of that behind. And he entered into a world of darkness. And even on this world, everything that he did, he only did before the eyes of the Father. He said, the fear of the Lord is the only thing that drives me. I don't fear man. I don't fear disapproval. I don't fear what you could do to the body. The only fear that I have is the Father who has never left me, never forsaken me. The love of the Father that I've known from all of eternity path, this is the only thing I fear. So he said, my food is to obey, is to do the will of the Father. I obey and do whatever I see the Father doing. And God comes to him and he says, this is the one whom I love. With him I am well pleased. And that's all Jesus needed. And he lived this life of absolute obedience and perfect fear of the Lord. He obeyed the Father all the way to the end, but at the end of his life, what was it that met him? It wasn't the pot at the end of a rainbow. It wasn't an end of delight and joy and fulfillment. At the very end of his life, after this life of perfect obedience, he obeys all the way to the end. And what does he get? He gets the God-forsakenness of the cross. And he cries out in darkness alone, 
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ, the only one who truly feared God, the only one who said, your opinion of me is the only thing that matters, at the end of his life, reaches out for the love of the Father and feels only emptiness and darkness and rejection. And you say, well, why would God do that? Why would the Father do that? Because that's what your disobedience is deserves. That's what your idolatry, running after all these other gods, that's what your enslavement to your own appetites deserves. It deserves the rejection of God. It deserves the wrath of God. But Jesus Christ came in your place, took the one thing that would cause him to cry out in God-forsaken despair, and he says, look how far I'll go. Look at the price I'm willing to pay. Look at the death I'm willing to die to set you free so that you can know the God of the universe intentions for you are delight and wonder and joy and freedom. And friends, if you realize, if you see Jesus doing that for you, if you see Jesus refusing to let you down even when it meant his life, if you see that, then his opinion is the only thing that matters. How could you let him down who refused to let you down even in the face of your sin? If you see Jesus doing that to you, it drains the power out of every other opinion out of every other rejection, out of every other source of approval. And you say, the fear of the Lord is the joy of my life. The fear of Jesus is what will bring me freedom. The fear of letting down this one who never lets me down. Nothing else matters. Friends, do you know Jesus like that? Would you today turn away from the vain things? Would you today ask God to turn your heart and your eyes off of selfish gain? Those things lead to emptiness and destruction and enslavement. Ask Him to turn your eyes to Jesus. Ask Him to fill your heart with the fear of the Lord so you won't be afraid of anything. Ask him to meet you now. Let's pray. Lord, would you form in us a life of joyful obedience that in a world where even the talk of obedience can feel repressive and backwards. Lord, my prayers for a community of people who've been so gripped by the love of God that our obedience becomes effortless and joyful, that we follow your commands all the way to the end and we discover the delight of knowing a love that we can never lose because it's a love that we never earned in the first place. So Lord, open our eyes to see the beauty of who Jesus is 
Break the chains of the obedience that enslaves us now. Obedience to our appetites and our desires. Help us to taste the freedom of obeying you and knowing that your words are the words of life. Train the muscle memory of our soul, O oh Lord, so that in the heat of the moment, we might know what it's like to respond the way Jesus would because we've known what Jesus has done for us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.